welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness. I'm uh, deep in an essay. Uh, I haven't been uh, writing anything new for, uh, well, at least a couple of weeks. I wrote a short bit a while ago, and then before that, I hadn't been uh, scribbling on anything other than uh, working on my book uh, for quite some time. So it's, uh, I'm really into this one. It's fun, and it's for a, um, a collection I'm co-editing with uh, Daniel Schulke of uh, Three Hands Press. And the name of the book is Daimon and Pharmacon, which is a nice uh, fancy way of talking about uh, the sort of uh, occult or esoteric dimensions of uh, psychedelic and entheogenic use, which is the uh, topic for the overall volume. Um, and I'm having tons of fun diving into uh, some some esoterica that I've been uh, that's been sort of bubbling in the on the back of my stove for many years. Uh, and it's a great relief to not be writing a, an academic essay or an essay for an art journal or where I can really sort of uh, explore this fascinating topic. Because I think one of the things that's happening with psychedelics now, uh, over the last couple of years especially, uh, and it's, uh, is, the, is this sort of s- this question now, now that we're, we're reframing the, the, the value and the importance of psychedelics in contemporary culture, and as, just as more and more uh, mainstream people are becoming interested in it, people who aren't, don't identify with the counterculture, who identify with healing or psychotherapy, or uh, you know, who are doctors, who are uh, people who are suffering, um, soldiers with PTSD, et cetera, et cetera, as, as that's happening and you're getting more and more mainstream articles about psychedelics. At the same time, I think other parties, groups are starting to go, well, how do we talk about this? How do we integrate these things? And one of the conversations that we've had a lot on Expanding Mind and that I've also had with uh, journalists and other podcasters uh, like Vincent Horn, for, for example, um, is the relationship between psychedelics and Buddhism, something that's been in the air for you know, really since the 60s, but has, has, has gotten a lot more um, rich and multidimensional uh, lately as people start to go, well, gosh, can we really use these things together? Does one support the other? What's the relationship? Um, so people are, are kind of getting beyond the question of like, is it legitimate to, to use psychedelics if you're also a Buddhist practitioner? And some people still say no, but a lot of people say, sure, why not? Uh, and those that do are like, well, how do we actually bring these things together? So you're finding these more kind of robust conversations about practice, about, uh, you know, d- different ways of navigating this space and how um, what you might think of as religious or spiritual paths can feed into psychedelic experience and vice versa. And this, a similar kind of conversation is going on. Again, one that's been going on for decades, but it has achieved, uh, I think, more um, visibility lately on um, this question of the relationship between esotericism or occultism and psychedelic drugs. Uh, even historians of esotericism, at least modern esotericism, are starting to think more and more that a lot of what they're talking about is really different ways that people have used uh, uh, entheogens as part of a path that involves animism, that involves contacting spirits, that involves uh, rituals, that involves the Western ceremonial tradition, involves Eastern Tantra. Uh, and so again, I think we're, we're seeing this sort of rich uh, this enriching of our discussion around psychedelics as different uh, parties, scientists and psychotherapists on the one hand, and occultists and 
Buddhists and, and even some Christians out there probably. There's definitely some uh, Sufis um, who are looking at these substances as parts of a broader and wider path. And uh, I'll be continuing this conversation with our guest today, Julian Vane, who's another um, uh, contributor to uh, Diamond and Pharmacon. I'm looking forward to his contribution very much. And uh, Julian's uh, a chaos magician, a writer, a practitioner of uh, many arts, and he's got a number of books to his name, mostly uh, about uh, occultism and, and chaos magic, but uh, an, an early one about psychedelic, psychedelics as well, uh, Pharmacon, which uh, my friend David Luke first turned me on to. Um, but we're, today we're going to be talking about Getting Higher, the Manual of Psychedelic Ceremony. And what he does there is rather than, you know, get involved in all sorts of uh, esoterica about, you know, trees of life and path working and internal energy centers and the logics of differences between invocation and evocation, et cetera, et cetera, and all this juicy esoterica is that he's recognizing that one of the things that's happening uh, right now with psychedelics, in addition to these conversations that I was talking about, is the fact that people are coming together and going, well, what are we going to do? How do we organize this? How do we do something together? How do we have a ritual that doesn't just, uh, you know, uh, cut, cut and paste uh, from some indigenous tradition, that doesn't just involve going to a party or, you know, just strolling through the street, though that can be, you know, have, have its own rewards. But what do we do as a group of people who are interested in exploring these things? How to fold these things into a group ceremony with involving play, involving exploration, involving silence, involving the body, um, involving ritual, involving invocation. And so it's a wonderful uh, guide with a, a, a playfully cheeky uh, kind of stoner illustrations throughout, which makes me particularly happy because it's uh, nice to keep the freak flag f- flying. So uh, with no further ado, Julian, thanks for uh, joining us on Expanding Mind. Thank you very much, Eric. It's really lovely to be here. Thank you for that uh, eloquent description of the conversations that are unfolding at the moment. Um, thank you for inviting me onto the show. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're one of these uh, people, I've, I've seen you around, you have a very... Uh, a mischievous, twinkly-eyed uh, kind of demeanor, which is my my favorite m- magical flavor. Uh, so I, I always sort of had a sense that that it would be a, a lot of fun to have an extended conversation for you. And after all, it's part of the reason I do this podcast. So, you know, and partly for that reason, uh, just to g- get a little better sense of you, I'd like to, uh, you know, ask you a little bit about your your history and how you kind of came into magic and and particularly. Uh, to to chaos magic, um, and then you know, sort of alongside that, it's probably a very interesting relationship. How you came to start writing about it, because you've definitely been writing about this stuff a lot for a long time on your uh, blog of Baphomet, which you share with a couple of other uh, characters, and with a number of books you've 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 put out over the years. So I get the sense that your sort of your magic and your writing are kind of uh, woven together as well, and I just like to hear the tale a bit. Uh, it's it's um, it's an interesting thing. I've always been interested in magic, so magic has always been the thing that's fascinated me. And all its various kind of guises, you know, parapsychological phenomena, weird stuff, UFOs, aliens, but particularly witchcraft, ceremonial magic. And uh, with this interest, I found myself in the library at a very young age, reading through the works of Sybil Leake, 
uh, and Alistair Crowley and um, Dorian Marianti and all these kind of people and really sort of became fascinated with this particular subject and spent a lot of time copying things into notebooks and doing stuff where I probably should have been out riding around the park in my on my bike or something. Um, and I started writing about it very early as well. I think I wrote my first article when I was sort of 14 or 15 that got published, uh, which was about the relationship between the left and the right-hand path uh, ideas of, of magic. And I've been writing about it really kind of ever since, both in diaries and, and publicly and in books and things. And it, it's just a subject and a field that fascinates me. And I love expressing that in writing. Yeah, I mean, that that's sort of, that's an interesting thing too, is, is how writing and magic are woven together. I mean, one way of thinking about it is like, well, you know, you have these experiences and then you want to articulate them or or reflect them or, or get other, you know, let other people know and, you know, kind of communicate with other people. But it, there's some, there's some deeper stuff too. There's a way in which the, the act of writing itself is a, is a kind of magic or it helps change your own relationship to um, experiences and exploration. And, and maybe I say this as someone who, who mostly kind of engages this stuff in, in terms of writing, both in terms of reading texts and how powerful and spiritually transformative and bizarre and, dream-inducing just books can be, not just books of uh, recipes and, and and protocols, but just books themselves can really open up uh, open up worlds. But then also the act of writing itself is a way of, of kind of finding yourself in spaces that are unknown, that where you're encountering things anew, and there's a kind of liveliness sometimes that, that goes beyond uh, a lot of the kind of conventional way we think about the act of, of, of writing. The, the, the gods of uh, magic are typically the gods of writing as well. So whether we think of Thoth and we think of him scribing down at the, in the Hall of Double Judgment, or we think of uh, Odin uh, coming shrieking from the uh, being pierced on the world ash tree and gathering up the runes, the fragments of mystery to him. So these are, these are deities like Mercury and uh, Hermes, who are associated intimately with the act of writing and, and script and text and all its various forms. And what is the world made of, if not ideas? And books are in, and, and uh, words in their various forms of the way that we spread and, and, uh, and, and, and change the world. Yeah? We, we, you know, the world is composed of ideas. And so to, to write is a, is a very powerful spell, literally to take your ideas, take your experiences and, you know, bring those out uh, into, into the wider um, newosphere. That's what we're doing here. So when you were young and, and reading all these books, I mean, you, in a lot of ways, these books were serving to kind of help initiate you. Uh, were you working alone? Did you have cronies? At what point did, did, did magic start to also be part of, a, of an entree into a social world, into to a, even a world of, of, of politics, you might say, or just how people were working together um, to explore the mysteries? Okay, so, so it's actually also a really interesting field for me because I'm also the sort of person who really enjoys collaborating and working with other people. And um, so a lot of my magic is also, as well as being about writing, it's been about working with others. So I had a close uh, friend at, at, at school um, from the age of about 11 onwards, and we did experimental pieces of magical ritual that we found in books. We did stuff in the woods and in the attic space of his home and so on. 
And very early on, I was attending um, kind of these, you know, these sort of psychic fairs that you get where people go into you know, tarot readers and all these sort of things. And I was always trying to find where were the witches, where were the serious occultists, where were the magicians. And eventually I found them and uh, became involved uh, working with a, a sort of Alexandrian lineage Wiccan coven when I was 16 in North London. And uh, the rest, as they say, is history. And then what, at what point did you uh, encounter and, and be sort of uh, drawn into a particular chaos magic or, orientation? And, and sort of what was it about that that appealed to you? Like what, was it, what did it speak to in a way that perhaps these other traditions, though clearly they're part of your practice and, and you know, part of your, your sort of lineage, you know, sets of lineages, uh, that there's still a kind of quality, in, at least in the, in the writing and the way you uh, describe uh, magical practice and even just your the voice you have on the page that uh, that I feel more akin to a kind of chaos stream um, so what did was there a certain point where you had a kind of awakening or was it always just part of the mix I think it came very early on um, from reading uh, uh, kind of ironically uh, a book called um, The Great Beast by John Simmons which is a biography of Alistair Crowley which is terribly uh, uh, damning on Crowley in many respects, but the kind of the combination of these two voices of uh, there's, there's Crowley's biographer who sort of hates him and sort of is fascinated by him and Crowley himself, this kind of strange cut up kind of character allowed me to see that magic had all these different voices, had all these different ways of existing. And then when I first encountered Wicca, although it was Wicca and Alexandrian lineage, the cover that I worked in was very, very eclectic. So we didn't use conventional uh, initiatory degree structures and we had a much more collaborative way of making the rituals. And that kind of suited me and formed me. And so uh, many, many years later, although I was familiar with, you know, um, so Phil Hine was um, uh, part of a group that, that I, um, I, I was working with and uh, I you know, knew people like sort of Pete Carroll and so on, but I didn't really kind of become... Uh, so directly involved in the chaos magic style, if you like, until about maybe 20 years ago, something like this. So, but in that intervening time, I was able to go to lots of different, work in lots of different group settings because I like working with other people. So I work with druids or I work with in Thelemic's kind of OTO style rituals or whatever. So it's always been my kind of practice. I suppose also for me, ritual, the style of ritual I prefer uh, typically is the style that is very sort of immediate and direct. And the thing about chaos magic as, a, as an approach is that whilst you can draw on all sorts of different uh, streams and traditions and ideas and practices, um, it's a lot about distilling ritual down to its simplest elements. And that's what I really enjoy. I really enjoy, um, I did a, a, a ceremony with uh, my partner Nikki Weird at the Altered Conference recently in um, in Berlin and the opening of the conference we wanted a ritual which would kind of gather everyone together that would put some intention into the conference that would that would you know do all the things that an opening ritual has to do so we constructed the ceremony which was very very simple in essence in essence what happened is that people had a ribbon they were going to tie it on a stick which would be held by the people who organized the conference and there would be some noise and that was basically it and we built enough ceremony around it that it was a ceremony but it was simple enough that nothing had to be explained, really, and everything was sort of self-evident. 
And that's what I like in, in magic. I like that sort of immediacy, which uh, chaos magic, I think, is a sort of pointer towards. Yeah, that, that really, uh, that, that strikes something in me. I've, I've uh, done a lot of uh, weddings. I've done like a, a dozen or so weddings. And sometimes they've been people I didn't necessarily know that well. And sometimes there was a mix of sort of religions in the crowd. You know, there's like the, the parents were, you know, very strict in a certain way. And every time I did one, I always had to, I had to do something. There, there was always some nonverbal ritual gesture that occurred that was really like when the bond was really happening. And it was really an interesting thing because I had to not rely on all these um, sort of surrounding associations or the, or the, or assuming that the crowd understood what these were strange words were. No, none of that was, was available. So it became very, uh, spare on, on, on one level, but on another level, very, very rich. And so uh, it, it makes sense to me that that would be uh, uh, an approach of yours. And it's also something very much uh, that, 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 you can, that you see in getting higher, where it seems like you're, as you're exploring these ceremonial elements that can work within uh, psychedelic experience, psychedelic group work, um, that you're, you're interested in, in things that are kind of accessible and available and can sort of get to the heart of things uh, rather than supercharging some kind of abstract set of symbols or a whole sort of metaphysics. Yeah, 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 totally, totally. I mean, I, I'm, you know, I'm all for fascinating and Baroque cosmologies. They're, they're great. Um, and uh, they're interesting to visit, but I wouldn't want to necessarily live in one of them. Um, and the things that I've tried to put in Getting Higher are they're sort of predicated on the ritual that emerges from our own instinctive humanity, rituals of greeting each other, rituals of sitting down together, rituals of sharing things together, rituals of making sound together. These are what simians do. This is what our hominid ancestors did a long time back. And it's just about taking those things and, and re-remembering that that's a technology, that that's an approach, and particularly when you bring that into psychedelics. So you can do some things that are really simple. Simply the act of being high on mushrooms and having some water and sharing that in a ceremonial way, you know, and then sharing it in a comedy way, and then sharing, you know, going through and exploring uh, what it means to be really uh, attentive, which is for me what ritual is, is kind of about. So it's a, a, an attempt to be attentive to that moment. So I've done weddings, I've done hand fasting type ceremonies, and I know what you mean. There's those, but the, the human moments of two people facing each other, there's a point where their hands come together. I remember doing a kind of, a, I think, a blessing with, you know, I put some water on their hands, put some earth on their hands. You know, these things made sense, even though I was in Sicily and I was with a mixed kind of, you know, English speaking and a Sicilian Italian speaking group of people, because ritual is instinctive to us. And uh, so what getting higher is about is a, an attempt to just just remind people, help people, give people some ideas about how they can reclaim this technology and utilize it in, psych the, the, in the psychedelic space. It perhaps in a way that's informed by the iconography of cos of, of other cosmologies or of, of uh, you know indigenous or native populations, whatever that means, uh, other traditions. But it's fundamentally about their share the shared humanity of of ceremony and sacredness. 
I mean, one of the things you mentioned there was, was again, sort of looking back at uh, the fact that these simplest of gestures, these things that we are, that are, that are basic to our ordinary lives and particularly the way we come together with people, you know, to celebrate or to enjoy each other's company, these elements of, of sitting together, of sharing material, of, of, uh, making sounds together, of playing together, of dancing together, that these things, you know, they go very, very far back, that there are, you know, all he, all humanity has this sort of ancestral heritage here. And that's an element of your kind of magical philosophy that comes up in your in your writings. And you sometimes address it directly, but it's it's almost more of a an underlying element, which is that on some level, even though you're willing to play with all sorts of metaphysical and spiritual possibilities or cosmologies that you're willing to play with that set space of, uh, of uh, you know, who knows what's going on here, that you're also very rooted in a, in a kind of um, evolutionary, uh, even Darwinian framework to some degree. And you see that very much in the, in, in the, the, the book you wrote with, uh, with Nikki Weird, the book of Baphomet, where you know, and I'd like to talk a little bit more about that that figure, which really intrigues me because it seems to be one of the more, at least in terms of your writing, one of the more um, sort of innovative elements where you're really trying to throw in a, a kind of new way of thinking about a figure that, you know, is sort of you're familiar with if you're one is interested in the occult and you come across the image from, you know, Levy's book and, you you know, you sort of see it on T-shirts and you know it's part of the story of the Templars, et cetera, et cetera. But you guys were really working with it in order to figure something particular about the history and velocity and intensity of life, real life, on this planet. So I'd, I'd like to hear that a little bit, like not just about the Baphomet figure, but the way in which that evolutionary, we, we're, an, you know, we're animals on a planet, we've been doing this for a while, the planet's been doing it a lot longer than we have, but we're part of that story. The way in which that 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 kind of material history of bodies and species and environments really informs the way you you think about magic and the way you approach issues like ritual and how to extract more meaning out of uh, out of, out of human life and how to celebrate, you know, at a time when it's so easy to for people to get confused and feel empty and feel depressed and feel disconnected. Uh, and it, that that evolutionary framework seems really important to you. The fact that physics gives rise to chemistry and chemistry to biology and biology to awareness and then an awareness of all of those other layers is a remarkable thing. And whilst we might frame this in terms of the standard model of the universe careering towards its entropic heat death, um, and undoubtedly, you know, you and I could be having this conversation at the temperatures of the beginning of the universe. There is this strange anti-entropic weird phenomena that arises into the fact we're having this conversation. And for me, that's deeply, deeply magical and deeply astonishing. And 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 uh, if there is a God in some sense, then perhaps the God is that process, that overall uh, tendency towards complexity, perhaps. I don't know. I have no idea. Um, I do know that, um, for me, the sort of, the kind of spirituality that I inhabit is very, um, 
it's kind of it's deeply interwoven with the way that the world is. So I, I'm not one of those people who has a belief uh, typically uh, in, you know, alternate universes of spirits. You know, this idea of sort of an astral, another place, a separate dimension. You just have to take enough DMT and you end up in this space. Because for me, the world itself and all the spirits and indeed those things that you encounter on high levels of DMT emerge from this astonishing matrix that, that uh, allows for the fact that the atoms that you and I are composed of were forged in these ancient dead stars, and they have arisen into this conversation, this self-aware conversation. Yeah, I mean, that's, it's... that's like that's magic. Yeah, it's extraordinary. It, it's it's interesting how even in worlds where people are resisting the old forms of transcendence, you know, the old ideas that we you got to get out of the body or that the you know, the, the body's just a, a bag of shit and you have to escape to the heavenly place or the earth is a kind of hell realm and we got to get out. Even people who are explicitly not interested in that, who are celebrate the body, who celebrate, uh, uh, you know, peop- uh, humans as, en- you know, animals that enjoy. Uh, but somehow when it comes to these questions about where do the spirits come from, where do these other dimensions come from, you, you, there still is this tendency to, to set it aside from, from yeah. this world, that there's some other world, there's some other place. And like you say, it's a huge part of like the lore around DMT in particular in, the, in psychedelic culture, that there's some kind of other dimension, that there, clearly there are these beings, and therefore they're like, you know, if only we could stay there longer, and maybe they'd give us, you know, math programs, or, you know, like, you know, that there's, yeah. the, and that sort of framework, which is, you know, in a way, a kind of science fiction framework, because in a, you know, in, in a, a sort of generous mode we might say yes there's probably life on other planets and if we were to encounter those pe- those beings it would be like you know a real being in a in a world that's our universe but also definitely from another place outside offside the planet and maybe that's part of it but it seems that there's something really challenging about just going yes all of the spirits all of the ecstasies all of the heaven realms that one can taste and touch in a life of practice and spirituality and exploration. All of those things are just, you know, resonances of this world. You know, this world where we're born, this world where we die, this world where we never really know what's going on. And it's beautiful, but you can't really build anything on it. At least that's the way I often come to it. You can build some things. You can figure, you can make your way through it. Uh, But that still seems like a, a challenging lesson for or, or a perspective for a lot of people I, I, it's it's, re- it's really interesting i mean this is all about metaphors ultimately and when we describe what it's like to travel i mean there i will use this language and i do this is part of the thing that, that i just try and do in getting higher to be a bit playful with the language so sometimes it's good to be talking about traveling into the spirit realm it's a perfectly good metaphor and it makes perfect sense and it describes something which we all will understand but the thing about um many of these experiences for me is that they uh they emerge through this mysterious matrix which is the whole of the world they're not they're not something which sort of sits outside in a separate universe it is not in my view uh, uh carlos castaneda notwithstanding a separate reality 
It is one total reality. And the thing about the spirits, for example, the entities that people encounter with DMT or ayahuasca or any of these these kind of experiences, these emerge, in my view, as real spirits. These are real things. These are real entities. They're meaningful uh, interactions that take place in those uh, with those um, those voices or those figures or those forces. And they may emerge from a whole complexity of interactions and they give rise to a, a face, something that we perceive as an external separate entity. But nevertheless, what's, what the spirit's body is made from, if you like, is it's made from the underlying programs that we have in our neurology. That's why they're bilaterally symmetrical things with eyes on, because that's what our neurology is geared up to find. That's why they look the way they do. So, so, no, no, so, so let's let's stay with this for a moment because I, I just I'm gonna I'm thinking of like a little a little devil's advocate came in my head and was like, okay, great. so if it's just your if you're just playing tricking your neurology in a sense or or you know allowing it to 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 come out that way how how meaningful could this possibly be like maybe it's fun maybe it's a, a novel uh but how meaningful is it if when you boil it down even these apparent entities or or spirits that people feel in connected with are really when you get down to it just sort of bubblings of their own dna well, the meaning is in the message, isn't it, really? I mean, the, the meaning of any of these experiences is what we, you know, what we fundamentally sort of make of them. Um, many people have, uh, and I've certainly had, um, uh, useful, uh, personally transformative interactions with these spirits. The thing about it is I'm not suggesting that these are not real entities. I'm not suggesting that these are not, not uh, untrue uh, in some sense. In the same way that one might talk about, um, you know, archetypes would be the probably the, the, the a close approximation to the sort of thing that I'm, I'm speaking about. So it's the, the spirit manufactures its body from things that allow us to pay attention to it. Hey, look at me. I'm, I'm running the program now of arachnid movement in your mind, because that's a thing that allows me, the spirit, which is a genuine emergent property now whether that's from your mind or the great mind i have absolutely no idea but it's a genuine thing because it can, can communicate to you an insight or something that you need to understand or uh, um, uh, it can offer you wisdom yeah so that's what that thing is functionally capable of doing i've seen it happen for me i've seen it happen for lots of other people but what the thing is built from is the thing is built from your experiences your biology yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, one way I also think about it is, is in terms of that the, the the agent that you're in, engaging is nothing is nothing more or less than, you know, a molecule or or a plant or a a, a substance, and that in a way all of the phenomena is kind of a an interface that develops metabo as you metabolize these compounds into your into your body, and it and that. Exactly. And that meta, meta, that uh, metabolism creates a kind of weird envelope, a sort of ontological passageway where all of these other things can occur, but they occur kind of within that space and time. That's all you need. You don't, you don't need to go beyond that sort of envelope, that experiential envelope. I think the interesting thing about one of the things that really fascinates me about psychedelics is that they are um, their stuff, their arrangements of atoms. So 
So they have all of those interesting sociological things about the fact that they can be bought and traded and trademarked and, 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 and so forth. Um, but the this liberation, this transformation into what um, uh, is often described as this, you know, this other reality seems to come from this reality. It seems to come quite clearly from a series of molecules in this reality. That's a very interesting thing. And that doesn't mean that these metaphors or this language is not useful. It doesn't also mean that there aren't times when it's, 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 it's easiest to explain things in this way. But I think for me, the reason that the, uh, the Book of Baphomet was a, yeah, it was a very important sort of piece of, piece of work on a variety of different levels was that for me, it allowed me to kind of develop this idea about the, um, yeah, the ontological reality of the spirits and, the, and, and, their, and the construction of them from your our, our, you know, pragmatic neurological substrate. But it's also meaningful to talk about spirits in the sense that we might talk about the spirit of a nation or the spirit of a time. And these are meaningful categories as well, and we can have interactions with those spirits potentially. Absolutely. I mean, even even the term society, you know, some people like, you know, Margaret Thatcher had this great line, there is no such thing as society. So for some people, like, there's just individuals doing what they do. And any idea of like social forces, which is such an important idea to be able to understand what's happening in our experience in human reality, even the idea of society, that of course, it's incredibly useful. It's real. It's it has its own egregoric tendencies. But on another level, it's also kind of a, a useful fiction to talk about it, to give it agential qualities when it, when it doesn't quite have the same claim as, you know, individual bodies that are, you know, engaging in, in a kind of physical way with each other. Where, where's society? It doesn't really quite, you can't point to it anywhere. So, yeah. but, but, but it's absolutely useful. So I, I think it, there, there are really a lot of things operate like the spirits in that sense that, that we find yeah, yeah. that they're convenience and we have to be aware that we're, they're partly, fa- you know, inventions, but as inventions, they also have their own voice, their own r- role to play. I, I think that's definitely the case. Certainly the way that I, I, I see it. I mean, it, you know, it could also be perhaps when, when uh, Nikki and I were doing the, the uh, um, writing the book of Baphomet, um, the sacrament that we were using um, for the some of the ceremonies that we developed with that process was five um, MeO DMT. So perhaps if we'd been using more NN DMT, we'd have come back with a much more uh, spiritist model of uh, of those experiences. But um, I was listening quite recently, actually, to a, an interview. I, I found an interview with uh, Terence McKenna on um, uh, just on floating around on YouTube. Which was five uh, M. Uh, Terence Terence talks about five MeO DMT and and D- and NN DMT. I thought this is great. I've never heard him speak about this, and um, uh, he just says, "Oh, it's like this weird feeling." Anyway, NN DMT. It's like this. There's these amazing things that appear. Um, so maybe it's just to do with you know the, this idea of sort of privileging the, the the visual. I find really interesting. You know, the idea of that if you can if you can see it, it must have a reality. So the experience of, say, 5-MeO-DMT and NN-DMT, you know, markedly different. So, you know, are these two different realities that I'm accessing here? Or are they different chemicals that do different stuff to my, my brain and therefore my experience? No, it's, it's a fascinating question. And it, it does make sense that, that Terrence wouldn't be interested in 5-MeO. I mean, another way of talking about it is not just the visual 
but the uh, subject-object relation, like in, 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 in NN, you're still very much a subject in a world of objects there and others and things. You're in a place and you have a sense of your subjectivity as being to some degree separate from this marvelous world that you can explore and encounter and and you know be you know terrified from or whatever it is but 5meo the signature is very different it's much more non-dual it's much more you know and it makes sense that a lot of people who are interested in in you know advaita vedanta who are interested in non-dualism who are interested in sort of consciousness meditation consciousness oriented meditation they find it incredibly useful and powerful a confirmation of their own kind of metaphysics, whereas Terence personally was just not interested in that stuff. He wasn't a meditator. He didn't care about, you know, sort of achieving states of kind of oneness with everything. You know, that wasn't his thing. He was an explorer. He was a, he was fascinated by objects and things and novelty and all of these, the sort of extended world was 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 his world. So it's a very interesting distinction, especially, you know, given how, how uh, you know, close cousins uh, those compounds are, but t- tell us a little bit more about Baphomet. I mean, even just a little snapshot of of where the figure comes from, uh, and then h- h- why you guys decided to work with that figure uh, it, w- within your sort of articulation of this this kind of you know uh, evolutionary vision of life. Okay, so Baphomet turns up obviously first in the Knights Templar trials. And uh, people can, if they're not familiar with that, can very, very easily read all the sort of Wikipedia entries about it and learn about the, the, the basic story. But in terms of the other end of the story, which is my kind of engagement with it, the style of chaos magic that I became kind of formally involved with, I suppose one might say, was the style of the uh, Illuminates of Thanateros, or the IOT. And... Uh, the IOT's uh, sort of patron deity, if you like, was Baphomet. So I, I'd, I'd already, as a very young man, uh, been fascinated by this 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 figure. Very, very interested when I was kind of being involved with Wicca about um, this idea of the, the the horned god, but this sort of horned god that was this um, uh, bisexual, epicene, uh, cut-up, mash-up sort of deity. Really, really appealed to me, this figure. So... Uh, I became interested in Baphomet kind of in, in that sort of you know, chaos kind of envelope. And then uh, Nikki and I did this piece of, um, sort of magical work, which lasted a couple of years. And alongside that, we looked uh, and, at the historical story, uh, the emergence of Baphomet and the various kind of points in history in which this thing pops up. And the kind of metaphor that we decided to develop was the idea that this was a deity kind of connected with the notion of evolution because it's a kind of a deity that doesn't have a, a myth. It sort of doesn't have a backstory. And the word itself is a probably a half-heard corruption of just the name Muhammad. So it kind of works through history like a like a piece of grit in an oyster becoming this pearl of this sort of uh, strange figure that if you put the word Baphomet into the internet, you'll find a vast array of different images of this, of this thing from the heavy metal, you know, black Norwegian death metal version through to, you know, cuddly My Little Baphomet stuff. So it's a kind of proliferating deity which has become associated with a number of different cultures, you know, kind of uh, transgender stuff and disability and um, the unformed and the uncertain and the queer and all that kind of stuff. 
And it is the the image that we kind of the kind of classic image where there's a breast and an erect phallus and the horns and the goat and it's sort of the strange cut up as you say. Is that really in terms of those sorts of elements? Does that just begin in the or our earliest record of it is in the middle of the 19th century? Yeah, I'm pretty sure this is you know a, a, a life of Levi's image is you know the, the the quintessential ground zero for the the. Uh, modern articulation of that figure. If you look at the images that appear earlier on, and there are a few, um, they're they're wildly different. Um, they look much more like sort of you know, Middle Eastern uh, sculpture. Um, but um, but there aren't really sort of you know there are really even in the Templar records the the figure of Baphomet is described as things like a, a, I think a, a skull is one of them with you know, rubies or some other gemstone in the eyes. Um, there are there are a couple of sort of hints towards a description but it's really a life of Levi that kind of captures it um in in his work and produces the Baphomet that we all know and love yeah and so uh was part of your your goal with this work to uh do ritual do practice uh get in touch with this energy which in some ways it was well known was had you know already was 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 serving as a kind of mascot of of of, or, of certain orders but at the same time like you said is is somewhat uh, uh thin on the mythology like we don't have associations with the figure necessarily or even exactly what kind of personality uh baphomet would have like you know if you if you talk about Kali or Babylon or Loki or Hermes or whatever, you know, all of those figures, like immediately there's these sort of character traits that appear. There's a sort of, mm. mine might be a little different than yours, but there's there's a sense of a personality. Whereas Baphomet is weird because it's very intense and rich, but also a little elusive uh, in terms of having a particular kind of character. Did you, did part of your work involve kind of fleshing that out so to speak like starting to understand what that the signature if you will of that uh energy was like um yes and no uh in the sense that the personality that emerged was that that there was a multiplicity of personalities and no personality because if you look at pete carroll's uh description of baphomet which which i think is in Liber null somewhere uh, he describes, or Psychonaut, one or the other, he describes Baphomet as the sum total of the, uh, the, the, the psychic life force of all things that are alive uh, on the earth right now. So um, it's like that. It has a multiplicity of personalities, like all those things that are alive right now. So in some respects, it's, uh, it does become that kind of non-dual, you know, it's the force, it's the Tao, it's the great spirit it's the whatever um but it's also the multiplicity you know it's also the like i mean when i when i kind of think about it the the sort of conjunction of the figure and darwin's on the origin of species and the sort of emergence of the idea of evolution which is so shocking to people i mean even people who are ready to give up christian mythology were still like it took a lot to sort of wrestle with the idea that we were just another extrusion of this immense multiplicitous process of like constant transformation and stumbling forward and and conflict and symbiosis and sexual seduction. I mean, the whole thing is this, you know, such a bizarre kind of worldview. Uh, and so while there's that unity, that Tao, that, that force that runs through all life, 
it's also simultaneously this intense multiplicity that's almost overwhelming sense of difference the way that you were talking about the way that people who identify with difference or who are not interested in simple dualities, you know, the, the queer side, the, the, the gender fluid, uh, the disabled, you know, people who are like, no, I don't want to get stuck in that kind of resonating, we're all one thing. You know, it's like there's this intense kind of aspect of diversity and difference that is part of that deep flow as well. And that struck me as being something that you guys were kind of playing with as well very 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 much i mean you know this is where it's quite interesting when when we when we think about well how do we how do we identify ourselves what are our our, our um I, what's the identifying language that we use because if i think about my own um practice i have to think about um well, am I am I a shaman? Am I a witch? Am I a magician? Am I an occultist? You know, all of these words are sort of sort of true and sort of slightly uncomfortable. Um, and having this sort of idea of multiplicity of identity and fluidity of identity, I think is is uh, really really kind of valuable. And that again, in getting higher, one of the things I deliberately do is sometimes I talk about drugs and sometimes I talk about sacraments and sometimes I talk about medicines and sometimes I talk about entheogens and sometimes I talk about psychonauts and sometimes I talk about practitioners and sometimes I talk about shaman and, and it's deliberate it's, and it's because all of these words are valuable, useful tools at certain times and you know, we just have to be thoughtful about how we deploy them. Because there are a multiplicity of identities. It is a, that's just a given. That's how it is. Well, one of the, the elements I, I really appreciate about, about getting higher that I think is related to this in some degree uh, is, although it's in a kind of different tangent, is, is, the, is the role or the question of humor. And I ask this because I think one of the challenges that people have approaching the, the possibilities of of ceremony whether they're in a in a kind of you know magical chaos magical frame or a or a psychedelic frame is that if they're not if they're not sort of natural ritualists you know some people are naturals they're just drawn to it they they have a kind of creative creativity there then there's often a sort of awkwardness about why are we doing this and not that? Why are we doing, you know, like, wait, is there sort of, what well, we have to do something kind of ceremonial, especially modern people who grow up and they associate that kind of sense of ceremony with the, with the church or with, you know, uh, boring state functions or whatever. There's this kind of desire to resist it, to make fun of it, to, to not get uh, absorbed in. And I think that that can, can prevent people sometimes from, the richness of uh, of ritual, and and so it's easier for people like that even to go to like a set ritual, like okay, I'm going to go to a you know Peruvian style ayahuasca circle because it, there's a it, it's it's a form, it's already there. I just I got to go along with it. But when it's you and your friends and it's sort of up to anything can happen. Um, there, it, it's I think that part that particular transition is hard, and a lot of it has to do with balancing the seriousness or earnestness that's required at certain moments in ritual where you have to really be signed up you're on board we're doing this we're not you know and yet there's a space around it of of humor or playfulness a way for it to break down a way for it to become silly 
And that balance, I think, is very tricky. And I'm, I'm curious where you think that balance comes from, like how people can include that as they begin to explore the kinds of practices that you, you're, you're outlining in the book. It's really important to have a good time um, as far as possible. And humor and fun are really, really do matter. And I think that although you might have a ritual which breaks down because people are making fun of the thing, you might also have uh, people making fun of the thing and then a ritual breaks out because that happens too. Sometimes uh, people will be just playfully hanging out and they'll find that they're building something, they're making something. A friend of mine was telling me about a, a situation where um, him and some friends were on mushrooms and they were just hanging out and they, they end up arranging all these leaves and stuff and moving things around and they eventually realized, you know, collectively in their bin mushroom state that they were creating this great sort of yoni mandala. It's what these guys were doing. And it just became a spontaneous ritual. Yeah. Okay, so these were people who were open to like that wasn't a completely flaky and weird possibility. But I think what you need is you need a whole variety of different things like Baphomet. So you need standard issues, Santa Daimi, UDV, this is, these are these sort of spaces. There's nothing wrong with that. That's great. That's fantastic. Really, really useful. You know, Native American church, peyote circle, brilliant, you know. And there is also space and hopefully techniques and, and ideas out there, which is why I wrote the book, to try and allow people who want to set up, you know, other variants or flavors or create their own things. They don't have access. But of course, you have a situation within any group where you agree to the basic kind of ground rules, just like you do when you have your friends around anyhow. And the ritual doesn't have to be a big deal. You know, the ritual can be a simple thing. The ritual that... Uh, you know, my, my simplest version of like, hey, guys, try a psych psychedelic ceremony for yourself is just to say, OK, you're going to go out clubbing. You're going to take some MDMA. Fantastic. Just before you take the M MDMA, just stand together for a moment, sit together, whatever, you know, check in with each other, acknowledge how fantastic you all are. Hold hands if you can cope with something as revolutionary as that. Maybe take a few breaths. Just thank each other for being there and thank the medicine for being there and have a really good night. Go and take the MDMA, go clubbing, have a fantastic time. And before you crash out at the end of the evening, just do a simple thing like this. Come back together, just sit for a moment, just look around at all the amazing people that are there. Really thank the medicine, thank that experience, thank each and every one of you. Go and sleep. That'll do. Start there. Yeah, it's not a big deal. It's just about bringing a little bit of intention to it because you'll get more bang for your buck. You'll get much more out of these experiences if you just tickle them a little bit. Set and setting. That's how we do it. Yeah, absolutely. No, that 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 question of getting more bang for your buck, I think, is really a funny way of of of, of approaching it because it's so true, uh, and it's sort of like it's sort of you're simultaneously appealing to the more to the budding spirit within someone the, the 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 emerging seeker and at the same time you're kind of like and it'll just be more fun <laughs> you know more weird things will happen that's what you're here for isn't it you know how do i mean i've been amazed when uh you know you, you can have a jag and, and suddenly like the the the, conviv the the convivial humor of hanging out and partying shifts for a moment maybe an event happens maybe someone stands up and needs to say something or the the, the energy shifts and it's extraordinary how much uh, you know, can happen in those in those passages of, of intention. So what do you think is happening now in terms of the spread of 
of club culture, of festivals, of this sort of, you know, exploding global scenes of sort of, you know, one part Burning Man, one part Psytrance Festival, one part sort of a ritual, one part EDM crass, uh, you know, night out on the on the town. You know, it's it's this weird mix and it's just kind of, uh, you know, it continues to uh, to bubble and, and mutate. Uh, how do you see that as a ceremonialist, as a magician, as someone who 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 believes and recognizes the way that uh, these altered states can be part of a you know a deepening or spiritual connection with other people, with with nature, with you know the cosmos? Is it like is this is it? Is it is the desire for that kind of ritual exploding out? Is there a, is there a, an opportunity that may be lost? How do you, how do you see what's happening now with with that broader club culture in terms of these potentials? Wow, that's really interesting. Um, as a magician, I like to think everything's going to be absolutely fantastic, and we're all going to get what we want. It's going to be brilliant. So. Uh, I do look around at the uh, psychedelic renaissance, um, to quote a term, and I'm very, very encouraged and very, very hopeful. Uh, I see with the, uh, what is it, the FDA third stage trials for the you know, MAPS um, fronted uh, MDMA psychotherapy, that's all going ahead. You know, that's all really running. It's, we're starting to have trials over here in uh, um, Great Britain. And I think there are really amazing things potentially happening. And we haven't had the psychedelic gnosis in Western European culture since the doors of Eleusis closed, pretty much. You know, that's a while ago now. That's like, what, 1,600 years ago. And uh, in the intervening time, our culture's gone a bit mad and it's done things like, um, well, we all know the stuff it's done. And so perhaps the reconnection with the psychedelic gnosis will help heal not just people that we've sent to war, but people that we've uh, impoverished and exiled and abused at all levels of culture. And ultimately, we will get on with the business of, um, you know, like Bill Hicks says, exploring in and out of space together forever. That's what I'm hopeful of. Yeah, it's interesting because I think one of the things you see with the with the if you if you contrast the way that psychedelic therapy is going forward with with the explosion of festival culture, is that one thing that festival culture is reaching for that is hard to see work in the kind of psychotherapeutic medical model is the collective, is groups, is being one of a larger force that's part of what the attraction is to the festival dance floor to the festival scene to the just even the parking lot or where people are staying there's the sense that i'm i my my relationship with different groups is is changing it's before my very eyes i'm i'm being i'm entering into a kind of if you want to think of it as tribal okay uh, relationship with all these others, whereas the way the mainstream of psychedelics is, is happening, it's very much uh, emphasized on the on the individual. And you know, the hope is that as people change, then they change their their families and their communities and their friend networks. But there's also a way that that kind of fits into you know, sort of existing consumer capitalist ideas about the individual and the way that self help kind of works in that world. So. I, there's something really powerful, if inchoate, about the collective side of 
the the festival scene and 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 indeed that's why i think the getting higher is important because you're saying to people hey you can do more than just go out on the town and have fun you can do more than just trip out on your own at, at your place you can start to play with how we construct community and collectivity um and that seems to be a really key thing right now i think going going back to the the issue of the sort of medicalized model and the way that we see that discourse emerging part of that is a tactic so part of that is that that's a pressure point at the moment and a very successful one thus far and every single time someone gets a license to uh, work with these previously uh, hugely prohibited uh, substances uh, that's a good thing but I think that the counterpoint of the counterculture and indeed the kind of craziness that that represents, the, slight, the, 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 the bacchanalia that that kind of creates in culture is really, really important, an important space to, to maintain. The thing is that I'm optimistic also because I see that there seems to be quite a lot of it about, which is good. Um, so even in the face of still very harsh and repressive legislation about the, the, the use of those substances, there seem to be many spaces in which they are broadly tolerated, and that's interesting. You know? So I think we are seeing these substances come into culture. Now, I believe that these substances can be medicines, and they can be medicines on a variety of different levels, including for us as, as communities. And I do genuinely think that if you think of the history of Northwestern Europe, and you think of the, the drugs, the spirits that have influenced us, and if you think about things like sugar and you think about things like tobacco and coffee and chocolate and these substances, tea, what Northwestern Europe did was it had these, this rapacious desire for these alien spirits and it erected the slave trade to fuel that desire and use them to... Julian, collect. you just opened up a whole new zone and I know that that's what you're writing about for me, but we've got to go right now. So I just want to say... I just want to say thank you so much for uh, for joining us on Expanding Minds. Sorry to overlap you there, but uh, blogofbaphomet.com, a place to find out about what you're doing, upcoming workshops. So thanks again for joining us on the show. Eric, really, really pleased to be here. Nice one, man. All right. Until next week, keep your minds open. 